Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My name's Artie. In today's episode, I welcome Benjamin Kintish. Ben is a musician, a comedian, a cantor, and a teacher. In 2016, he started working as a chaplain in hospice, and that experience inspired him to write a musical comedy called Life Review, The Hospice Musical. I invited Ben on to discuss the musical comedy and the surrounding themes. Let's welcome Ben. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. So you are making Life Review the, the hospice musical. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what led to that? Absolutely. And thanks again, Artie, for having me on. I'm so glad to be here. When we found each other, first thing I said is awesome title, because I think I'm often thoughtfully mindless or mindlessly thoughtful or other permutations of those words. Um, so I enjoyed the name of your podcast, and I'm delighted to be on it today. So thanks again. You're asking me about Life Review and its origin story. So I'll tell you first the elevator pitch. Life Review, the hospice musical, is a new musical comedy that I created along with a composition team of Michael Miller, Jason Spiewak, additional music from Miriam Cook and Andy Basov. It takes place at a residential hospice and the stories of the patients come to life through songs. It's happy, it's sad, it's very funny, and certainly very poignant. And um, I'm here today to share a little bit about that, but also to talk about all manner of the themes and topics related to the play in the span of the full-length play, which is about 2.20, 2 hours and 20 minutes, 16 songs, or the one-man cabaret version that I've been performing lately, uh, which is only eight songs, still um, we experience a big range of emotion and a big range of life experiences. So that's the big picture about the play. Um, I think the second part of your question was, where did it come from? Uh, Or something like that. So Life Review was... Uh, The name is actually borrowed from a clinical technique of the same name, Life Review, uh, which as a beginner chaplain, I learned uh, in my first year of training. It's basically a structured interview. There's a song in the play I might share in the course of our conversation of the same name. It's like the title track of our musical. And the song is built around questions. Who are you? What did you do? Where did you go? Who did you know? And so forth. So these questions in the song are based on real-life conversations that happen in the clinical setting uh, when a uh, chaplain or a social worker or counselor, any kind of helping person has this interview with a patient, typically an older patient, but it could be a younger patient dealing with end-of-life care. But the idea of the life review conversation, Artie, is to have kind of a framework for a conversation that's meant to be an interview with a particularly uh, wide net, right? A particularly wide scope, a little bit deeper and more profound if you're skilled than perhaps like what a celebrity interviewer might get. So the song tries to model that. So that was like a neat little trick of songwriting. Maybe I'll share that along the way. But Life Review, the Hospice Musical as a big project, is all about taking these stories and kind of bringing the the razzle-dazzle of 
of Broadway or musical theater. I see you nodding and smiling on the other end uh, to, to these sort of private and quiet moments. Um, To be clear, a chaplain in their work, most of it happens behind closed doors. Similarly, nurses and GNAs, all the, all doctors for, for sure, all of the people who work with older people, who work with sick people, who work with dying people in, in the case of hospice, um, most of their work is kind of private. So um, I think that's part of the reason why workplace dramas set in um, medical places are rather popular because they take a lot of super private moments and they shine a camera on them so all can watch and listen. The other thing is uh, there's heightened drama in the hospital and certainly in the hospice setting. Um, I didn't realize this from the very beginning, but a drama person pointed this out to me where I made some self-deprecating joke about like, oh yeah, it's a musical set in hospice. And I was like, I have to always convince people that it's not a bummer. And they said, oh my God, it's an amazing setting because you have heightened drama from the moment you step through the door. And I said, how so? And they're like, well, you know what hospice is. Like it implies a a fastly ticking timer. Or if you want to use the the sands, I guess that's a soap opera reference, but like the, like the sands through the, the glass. For those who don't know, and I think this was one of your questions, I'll answer it briefly and we can circle back if you want deeper. Hospice yeah. is six months or less to live in most cases. So and when that's you at know home hospice, care, right? What? So hospice is specifically like it's kind of like hospital outreach, right? Where it's at it's the not person's hospital. home. It's a it's a subset of healthcare, Artie, that is specifically designed to be non-invasive, um, non. It's not fully non-medical. Um, you could think of it as kind of comfort care and symptom management for someone experiencing end of life, also known as dying. So it's sort of the antithesis of someone in a hospital getting more and more medical interventions, the beeping machines, the tubes, and so forth. Hospice care is a different route where people receive um, care from medical professionals, including doctors and nurses, as well as the whole care team that includes chaplains and social workers. Um to help people be comfortable during their final six months or so on earth. Um, most people are referred to hospice care in this day and age is end-stage cancer. I worked with patients, end-stage Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Note, it's not someone who's been hit in a, hit by a car. Like that would not be someone who qualifies for hospice care. Because like the way our medical system works, someone like that would typically go straight to a hospital and have aforementioned machines to try to save them. Um, Typically, people go into hospice by choice in consultation with their loved ones and their medical professional team. In America, you need um, two medical professionals to sign off on it, usually your own doctor and the hospice doctor. So that's sort of like a quick and dirty on what hospice is. But they essentially get to stay in their own home usually, right? Instead of going to the hospital. It depends. Um, 
Hospice care can be administered in a hospital setting, but it is most typically, hospice most typically occurs either in a home setting or in an assisted living or elder care facility. So if you think about it, again, I'm speaking for the United States. If you have listeners from around the world, there's some parts of the world where there's a different balance. But in the U.S., the majority of our elders do not age with the younger generations. Some do, but I think that's the exception to the rule. The vast majority of our elders either age alone, meaning aging in place, or are institutionalized in some sort of elder care, right? So Mm -hmm. those people, when it comes time to be in the dying days, um, they might qualify for home hospice care. And that includes regular visits from a nurse and a social worker and getting the medicine they need. And then as care intensifies in the final days of what we call active dying, then you need to have like chaplains and nurses on hand more regularly and more steadily. But and can you, can you describe yeah, what a chaplain is? Absolutely. So a chaplain is a religious professional who specializes in administering care or ministering as the religious professionals sometimes use ministering to those in uh, spiritual distress, most okay. typically in a setting or a moment of heightened distress due to life and death situations, illness, crisis, natural disaster, danger, and so forth. So um, in pop culture, the most famous chaplains of all time include the priest uh, in MASH. So that is a a chaplain in an army setting. There are hundreds, if not thousands of chaplains employed by the various armed forces, and those are clergy people employed by the government. It's kind of a wacky bending of the rule about church and state, but the idea is to provide spiritual care for the the troops. And yes, there are, based reflecting the numbers and the need within our armed forces, there are chaplains who are trained in Catholic and Protestant versions of Christianity, as well as different versions of Judaism and Islam. Okay. Um, There may even be a handful of other smaller religions within the military like Sikh and Buddhist. I'm not sure, but it's possible. Um, It should be said though, that chaplains um, are trained to administer their services or let's say provide administer is kind of wonky uh, to help people in their own faith tradition and across the faith tradition. So for instance, I am in real life trained as a chaplain. Um, I'm a real cantor. I went to Cantorial School, which is a seminary program that was five years of Jewish music as well as Judaics. So I'm a real clergy person. And then I did four years of chaplaincy training while I was already a real cantor, wherein I visited for a thousand hours of visitation uh, with supervision. It was, prob- I think it was several hundred each year times four. That's how I get to a thousand hours. Um but like visiting bedside one hour at a time, um, that yeah. was that was the training for chaplaincy. It's not super uh, that piece with the supervision and then like 
The roundtable discussions is similar already to how I understand a lot of social workers and school counselors get training because you have these sort of clinical moments that are private, but how do you dissect them and reflect on them? So that in the chaplaincy training, we did what were called verbatims, 10 per year, where you would kind of account by memory a one-on-one account encounter write it down. You later, you know, use pseudonyms or initials, so you're not breaking any confidentiality rules. And you write as many exchanges as you could remember. And then later you type it up and then analyze it. Um, This sounds super daunting to the listener. It is very hard at first. And then um, with repetition, the exercise becomes easier. By the time I was in my 10th verbatim, the fourth year, I was like, oh, no problem. And I could do, I could do upwards of thirty exchanges by memory, no recording device. It's okay. kind of a remark, and nice. I'm not. My my wife will tell you I have a, a pretty bad memory, um, so it was a particular kind of a skill. Um, but the reason why we did it, um, and it's very particular to chaplaincy, is we were training in this kind of art of the brief and impactful helping encounter where you go into the room, you're not promised a long visit, depending on the health and energy, the person you visit, you might get between 20 and 40 minutes. More than that, you're kind of pushing it and you might exhaust the person you're visiting. But in that time, you're trying to quickly establish rapport, you know, make them feel comfortable as you morph into what's going on, you try to quickly in your mind identify what's the source of spiritual distress. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to make it religious, if you were just being a counselor, you would say, what's the problem? You know? Yeah. But spiritual distress is the phrase that chaplains use um, because we kind of speak in religious metaphors. If the patient says, um, hey, I want a visitor, but I'm not interested in your religious mumbo jumbo i'll be like great i'll sit with you and i can play the guitar i would by the way i have the guitar over my shoulder for those of you who are listening um i usually traveled room to room with a backpack guitar bag and a guitar in it and after talking for a while if the conversation stopped or if the person couldn't talk a lot because they were seriously ill guitar and song could be a nice way to bring some life to the visit um, but anyway, the, I, I hope I explained what chaplains are. Yeah. Um, again, they can exist in a military setting, a hospital setting, a hospice setting, a prison setting. This is a fun fact. They're chaplains for many professional sports teams. They're chaplains for some NASCAR teams. Interesting. Um, NASCAR has an unusual need in that once in a while a driver gets killed because yeah. of high speed crashes. So a chaplain might be on hand to provide essentially crisis counseling in a um, sort of religious fashion. Um, And uh, yeah, it's good to know what a chaplain is to understand my play because our hero, Rabbi David, is a chaplain uh, based loosely on my own experiences. And yes, he looks a lot like me when I play him on stage. (laughs) but uh, I am not Rabbi David. Rabbi David is not Ben Kintish. But uh, 
the the character I play is a beginner chaplain, and that experience of being a beginner chaplain is something that has echoes from my own life. But I think like any any theater goer might relate to the struggle of uh, being a beginner and needing to do well at a job, trying earnestly and still stumbling uh, repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you can relate, Artie. Have you ever had a a job that was difficult before it got easy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So what inspired you to be a chaplain? Well, I was a cantor working at a synagogue. Again, a cantor is like a music minister at a Jewish okay. synagogue. And uh, the congregation was... Well, to put it plainly, skewing older. And so if you have a congregation where more than half of families are 55 plus, possibly 65 plus, it means you're going to be doing a lot of hospital visits. You're going to be doing a lot of calls to when so-and-so moves to a nursing home or when so-and-so moves out of the hospital and into the rehab for a while. And of course, you're going to do a lot of bereavement work funerals and yeah. in the Jewish tradition, we have the uh, brief at-home services that follow called Shiva Minions. That was part of the Cantor work. So I was doing these little pieces of work in my role as Cantor, and I I saw that the need was much greater than uh, simply leading the services and having a gentle approach with my congregants. Um, to be fair, Artie, I think I always had good instincts, just as like a kind and gentle soul. Um, and I, since I was a little boy, I was kind of good at uh, interacting with older people. When I was a child, I, apparently I often chose to sit at the, quote, old people table hmm, at my synagogue for like community lunches. So I've always enjoyed the company of elders, and I've not been frightened by those who are disabled or ill. So I was comfortable to kind of go into a hospital or elder care, or it turned out hospice care setting, um, to do this training. Um, That's one of the pieces of chaplaincy that you have to be ready for. Um, I imagine, I, I can't speak to military chaplaincy training, but I do know that in general, whatever the setting the work is essentially the same. It's a visit that has a beginning, middle, and end, whether it's at home or in a clinical setting or in a wartime setting or a professional setting. Um, The person who's visiting, again, the chaplain is that religious person. So I... Oh, you had asked me why... I'm sorry, I was over-explaining there. You had asked me why did I why I was inspired to do it. So I saw a greater need than I could meet. Okay. And and it also felt like for some of these people, the, how do I put this? The profundity, it's a fun word to say, the profundity of their, their pain was kind of deeper than I could handle. Interesting. You know, we didn't get a ton of training in chaplaincy in seminary i mean i'm being understated it was very minimal maybe one semester out of five years of training one or two i got an elective style course and it wasn't nothing but it wasn't consequential compared to what i 
did in my real life chaplaincy training. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the training adventure and journey into chaplain work began basically like as a simple, there's an unmet need. Lots of older people in the congregation, lots of people are getting sick and injured and dying and there's going to be need for support. I'd imagine the additional bonus. What's that? I would, I would imagine the, the actual real experience after training is often more daunting than the training reveal, right? Yeah. I mean, the way CPE, the program, there's a few different trainings. uh, So forgive the alphabet soup. The one I did was clinical pastoral education or CPE for short. So my program, I think, required 300 hours of clinical work plus another 100 hours of class time Mm. per year. So to get those 300 hours, that's a lot of visits. I mean, if it's a 40-hour year that you're going to do your class, oh, geez, I'm not good at envelope math, but figure five to 10 hours per week you need to log making visits. So that's that's the real-life experience you get concurrent with a weekly class. Okay. So built into that class, which is typically a long class, kind of grad school style, maybe there's a dinner break built in. Um, it includes weekly presentations to your peers. It includes sharing those verbatims I mentioned earlier. And um, sometimes you do a verbatim on a tough case or just one that tickles your fancy and there's something that you want to reflect on with the group. And sometimes something happens where it's just painful or difficult and you can bring it up, just sort of claim time. Um, because CPE is designed um, I believe they cap it at five or six adult learners per class. Okay. To me, that's super small um, on purpose because it's like emotionally intense material comes up. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly working hospice care, but even if you're quote, just working in a hospital, like you're going to be who gets paid or like, where does the, ho- the chaplain get, paged in a hospital it's to the er you know when some kids someone's kid just died and they're like ah yeah. having a crisis i need a chaplain right so like different kinds of skills in different kinds of settings did i answer your question already i'm not sure if yeah. i did yeah definitely okay so the this is a musical comedy you ended up creating um, yes. The subject matter doesn't immediately register as comedic material. Did Correct. it? The idea for this musical comedy did it start off as a comedy, or did that shape over time? I am non-sarcastically applauding your question. It is unique and very thoughtful. Um, a lot of people have noticed that it feels like a non sequitur or nonsensical to have a musical comedy about hospice. I assure everyone. The play is very funny, um, including our opening number, which is comedic, um, to kind of set the the tone that we're going to laugh along the way. Um, To quote a favorite childhood musical, uh, it takes a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. And there have already been made innumerable plays 
that begin with suffering and get worse from there. Um, a lot of them are Russian <laughs> <laughs> or some of them, I believe there's a category called tragedy, yeah. right? Um, and that is a, a fruitful and rich subset of drama. It's not where I wanted my work to land. Um, partially because I wanted to play with expectations. Um, but I'll, I also want to give credit to my original co-writer, Jason Spiewak. I had started writing this project on my own and shortly after getting an initial positive response when I shared a, an early draft, um, one of the tips from my new friend and guru, Sue Horowitz, she said, if you're actually trying to pull off a musical and it's your first one, you probably want to have at least one partner. Hmm. She's like, you're a good songwriter, but like no shame in getting at least one person on your team. And that was great advice. So I sought out someone who I knew was a songwriter, a friend from the JCC, you know, whose kid also went to preschool with yeah. mine. And um, name is Jason Spiewak. We made a, a get together at his house, drank some bourbon, and we were laughing about the project. And he, he and I kind of acknowledged the truth to your question, Artie. Like, okay, Ben wants to do a musical about hospice. How are we going to convince people that they can go along for the ride? And he said, we have to break the ice. He's like, so the opening number has to be funny. And I said, I said, that's a good idea. And then he kind of came up with the punchline, which was everyone dies in the end. And I said, that's gold. And I wrote it down. Later, my uh, the, the composer for that song and the kind of great vaudeville style, um, his name's Andy Bossov, switched it to everybody dies in the end. Just so we get a little more rhythm. Everybody dies in the end. And uh, the reason why we do this funny number is to get everyone nervously laughing, hopefully more than nervously laughing, hopefully just laughing, laughing before the play even starts and to teach them the first of many important life lessons that everybody dies in the end. And the song is one of these list songs that goes on and on and on to belabor a point for comedic and uh, didactic effect. Uh, and of course, it has a double meaning, right? Because in a play about hospice, everybody dies in the end. Um, parentheses, uh, not everyone. Um, happily, the rabbi character, I wrote it, so I survive. And uh, my friend, the nurse, she makes it to the final act as well. Um, but all the uh, plus ones, they survive. Um, the patients, however, they die because that's part of how hospice works, right? Mm -hmm. No magic Hollywood miracles. Um, However, they do get to sing and dance along the way. So that's kind of cool. That is cool. Um, why do you think it is that this works as a, like such a somber subject? Why do you think it works as a comedy? So look, the best for one, I'll start, I'll start, Start with myself, which is where it begins, right? <laughs> but more about me, Artie. So your guest today is a sad clown, like so many comedians. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I am comfortable with 
the deep pain that is death and dying and all of the echoes of that that you get in hospice care, right? When I first interviewed with the program at Center for Life Hospice, shout out to Rabbi David, um, I did a phone interview with him and he said, Ben, I know you're interested in learning about chaplaincy, he said, but let me just name this, hospice care is not for the faint of heart. Are you comfortable seeing people who are dying? Are you uncomfortable seeing people who died recently? Are you comfortable working with bereaved people? Because there's a lot of that. It's hospice. And I was like, yeah, I am. Um, my wife, who's a school counselor, but uh, you know, has been a guidance counselor, she likes to say there's a job for everyone and everyone can find their job. So like I have some skills that are sort of, that include some like feelings, superpowers. And I guess a certain amount of that includes emotional resilience to go into those very painful situations, absorb a certain amount of people's pain. And then upon leaving the situation, go bowling. And I mean that literally in some situations or metaphorically, um, I, you know, we were both musicians, you know, change it up, play some music. Um, that was always important to me during my training, especially during hospice work, um, that I always scheduled after even a one or two hour hospice shift or in-home visitation hospice visits, I would always schedule some activity to kind of reset my body. Yeah. The year I wrote the musical, I literally went bowling every week after my longest shift at hospice. And I was thinking if I write a memoir about the writing of the musical, I might call it Bowling for Hospice. Um, because there was a lot of processing that happened and like the, one of the things about the work, it's not just the, uh, emotional impact already. There's also, um, there's a stillness. So I see you have this naturally. I think it's part of what makes you a good interviewer. And I think it, it's also part of what makes your long form format work because your posture and demeanor, I think, puts your guests at ease. So we're ready to oh, go with you to a relaxed and, and if necessary, expansive place. Um, so, you know, if you're also pious, Artie, we can talk offline if you have a bonus future in chaplaincy. I'm not recruiting. I don't get a commission, but like they're, they're, they're definitely crossover skills. Um, but for that matter, you know, if you're not in the theological realm, there's a huge demand for counselors and all of those helping professions. Um, mm. so the, the skills are all kind of similar and it includes, it includes sitting with some really painful moments and occasionally feeling all the feels. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I first started chaplaincy training, I was a younger man. I'm still not that old. I'm 43 now. But it's 10 years ago when I started the training and the musical began. Maybe it was 11 years ago I started the training. Um, I just mentioned that because the fact of me being a, a youngish, cisgender, hetero man is sort of an important detail to this story. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that sounds doesn't sound lecherous, but it's worth mentioning. Um, so I was working my rounds in my first year of hospice care and I met a woman, um, who was dying of cancer 
Uh, she was a Latina woman, I believe Dominican. Dominican is a very big population in New York City and the surrounding area, including New Jersey, where I was working. And uh, she had some family visiting. I came to learn that the woman, I think, as chaplain, I wasn't privy to immigration status, but I was able to learn that because of immigration questions, um, the family was not likely to be at a funeral or a burial or, or some sort of situation like that, mm -hmm. right? So we were looking at like, saying goodbye to the sister. And so I went in to the, see the sister. I hadn't seen the family yet. And I visited her. She was, I want to say, maybe 35 or 40. So pretty young for hospice care. But we know cancer can kill people well short of old age. Yeah. And uh, she had all of the signs of end-stage cancer, kind of emaciated woman, um, almost skeletal. And um, I also, you know, I sat with her and I visited with her and it so happened because she was Spanish speaking, I was able to minister to her in Spanish. And then her family came in and it included uh, a man and a woman. The woman, it turned out was her sister and she was very beautiful. And they were all gathering and they were um, praying for her. And I came to learn that uh, the beautiful sister was the younger sister. Mm. And that by two years. So maybe she was 33 and the dying woman was 35. Yeah. And so like this very creepy, not to like over sexualize the situation, but kind of like a before and after of like beautiful woman in the prime of her life, gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And then two years older, ravaged by cancer dying and very little left. And I remember that just kind of jarring me on so many levels. Like there's like the sexual level and then there's like the before and after. And there was the, like, it was kind of interesting because it was Spanish. Like there's just a whole mess of feelings. So we, we unpacked it a little bit in supervision. Um, and, you know, part of it wasn't there there was so much more to it because it wasn't even just as simply simple as like okay a beautiful woman even a sexy woman could die of cancer like that is a fact yeah. you know regardless of one's youth or attractiveness one can die from birth to death yeah we are mortal at every moment of our life regardless of how good looking or fugly we are we are all mortal um so, so maybe it shook off like the veneer of like sexiness equals immortality. I think the other thing is I unpacked that very dramatic moment was that there were like abstractions that I felt as a democratic liberal, I'm going to come out here as a lefty lib, right? Where like the ugliness of the immigration debate for me, someone with uh, several generations of passports in the Kintish family, it's kind mm -hmm. of 
an abstraction, right? Doesn't affect me that much. This hospice patient definitely didn't have a passport. I don't know if she even had papers. And she was dealing with this family situation that I could not comprehend. I mean, can you ever imagine already someone in your family dying and you weren't allowed to visit their funeral because of immigration issues? Yeah, uh, it would be horrible. It'd be a nightmare. I, I mean, a lot of us, for COVID reasons in the last two years, experienced not being able to go to a funeral. Um, for And that had to do with like public health and safety. But sometimes we forget, those of us who are privileged and have passports, that there's like a whole underclass in the United States. All of these undocumented people we talk about who wash our our home or, you know, clean our homes and pick our produce and so forth. Sorry to be soapbox here, but long form allows it. Um, the thing is, in the United States, medical care encompasses all people, citizen and otherwise. And um, I should mention that this dramatic scene did happen at one of our two facilities, the one that provided charity care. The other facility, this is like for you international listeners, <laughs> this is a very American thing. Mm-hmm. Twin facilities. Have you ever heard of this, Artie? One facility that pays the bills and one facility that does the charity care. That's a thing. Interesting. I mean, in the United States. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know um, that. It is more common in smaller facilities. So in this case, it worked. It was two residences that had been donated. One was originally donated. Um, a very large, purpose-built, um, God, the back bef- back when um, good Catholic girls didn't get pregnant but kept getting pregnant, they would put them in a house um, so they could give birth to their children away from public view and shame. So I believe they were colloquially known as homes for wayward women or wayward girls. Okay. Um, So this hospice that I worked at was a former home for wayward girls. Um, Strange historical origin, but it meant that it was a beautiful Victorian looking home with like 20 rooms and therefore space for 20 patients in a home-like setting. Um, Big and long and flat to make things accessible. And um, yeah, that facility provided free care or, or cheap care for anyone on Medicare or Medicaid um, and a handful of spots for undocumented people. Um, Because think about it. uh, Sometimes homeless people off the streets could be put in there if, if a space arose, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you're dying and you can't afford care, Imagine how horrible. Yeah. Um, again, uh, so having charity care provided to a certain number of patients was an important part of our mission. The flip side of it was I also did half of my training in a beautiful facility. Um, I mean, the other one was also beautiful, to be clear. The charity care place was not a dump. It was very nice. The other place was beautiful, newly built 10 years ago. So it had that sort of pretty shine of a newer built building. But again, in that um, home-like model, um, so it didn't feel like a hospital. It felt more like uh, a residence for elders uh, with apartment-style living with some common spaces. So 
those people who were in hospice for a long, long time, they could do birthdays and Christmas celebrations in common areas. And I, oh, nice. I participated in those as well. Those are some of my favorite memories. And I tried to put some of those moments into the musical as well. Those common area moments where the patients kind of interact with each other and have, have uh, friendships. Yeah. Well, one question I have, and, and you don't have to answer this if it, if it touches on something too personal. When you were looking into being a chaplain, you were warned that it's pretty heavy, you know, yeah. um, did you have experience with death prior that you, that you knew you can handle it? Yes. And thank you for asking. And I'm ready for heavy. Uh, part of the work of the chaplaincy work to part of the work of chaplaincy training rather was to go deep into the heavy. Um, and I'm, I'm ready for it. Uh, but thanks for, thanks for the disclaimer. Nonetheless, that's thoughtful. Um, yeah, we, we actually did this activity one week in one of my years of chaplaincy. It was a, a death map. It's kind of an interesting exercise for any of your listeners to, to consider doing. Uh, it's like a timeline of your life, but where instead of like highlights a la momentous occasions... I mean, you can do that just sort of as goalposts. So in my life, I'm 43, it would be birth, you know, maybe high school, college, graduate school, graduations, you know, maybe important girlfriends, <laughs> woman who would become my wife, birth of daughter, and so forth. Creation yeah. musical, ta-da. Um, but the one with death would have some of the following. So when I was... Um, believe nine years old third grade was the first important death that was the death of my grandma charlotte there was an important moment where we were on our way field trip to go see the high school musical for their traditional thursday morning dress rehearsal for the kids mm -hmm. and i got paged by the you know go to the office and and someone i think gave me news that said your grandma died do you want to go home or do you want to go to the field trip? Now, young Benjamin loved theater and loved the idea of the field trip. So I really wanted to go. But then we had to go to the bathroom, as you have to do when you're in elementary school. And they say, everyone's got to go to the bathroom before we get on the bus. Yeah. And after uh, going, I was washing my hands and I just started crying. And I wouldn't stop classmate said what's going on ben and i said my grandma charlotte died it was just so sad yeah and uh couldn't really get a hold of myself so i think someone fetched a grown-up and it was determined maybe benjamin should just go home so i was sent home or maybe sent to the office and i was brought home but like so part of that memory to me, oh, I should also say that same death of Grandma Charlotte was the first time I saw various members of my family cry so openly. Mm. That included my father, that included my grandfather, Bernie, who's who was now a widower. Um, you know, Grandma Charlotte was not an easy woman. Um, she was known to be, as we say euphemistically, a tough cookie. Yeah. A little bit of an acquired taste, a little bit bittersweet maybe a little bit bitter, bitter. Um, but clearly a lot of people loved her despite that prickliness, right? Yeah. And the thing is, 
I, I, and, and I, what I kind of learned at that death was that however we feel about the people we love, especially if it's not our chosen family, we're going to love them and be sad when they die. Um, and that was kind of, that was sort of a, a nuance that was new to a child. The next death, my grandfather's death was the one that I think planted the seed for my future adult interest in hospice care. You'll see why in a moment when my grandpa Bernie died and I, I loved grandpa Bernie. I was rather close with him. It was two years after his wife, Charlotte had died. He stumbled in my backyard. Sadly, I saw him fall. So that was like a sort of childhood trauma there. And, um, you know, he was taken away on a backboard. I believe he broke his back in the fall. Hmm. And then like so many old people, he had a series of complications. One thing leads to another. The body shuts down. Yeah. This decline already in the hospital took him, unfortunately, 10 months from the initial injury until his death in the hospital. Yeah. And um, I watched the decline after the initial sad injury, frightening injury. Um, I visited Grandpa Bernie in the local hospital and then in the more involved New York City hospital. I'm going to estimate maybe five or six times, so like every two or three weeks, maybe every month. I don't remember exactly, probably every month until he died. So I could kind of see the decline over time in the body and the cognition. I believe he was suffering from many strokes. And that was very painful for me because I loved Bernie so much. He was like a sweet, gentle giant. He was rather tall and a little bit husky. In his youth, he had been a postal service worker back before U UPS was invented. The postal service used to have its own division called Parcel Post. It still kind of does, but... Mm -hmm. It's kind of all together now. But yeah. Parcel Post, before UPS and FedEx were all these separate private companies, the Postal Service had its own package division called Parcel Post. So my grandpa Bernie was a Parcel Post guy and therefore lugged thousands of pounds of packages every day for 30 years of his life. So a big, strong guy with yeah. back troubles. <laughs> so I'm... My grandpa's grandson, I have back troubles, uh, not related to parcel post, related to a youthful injury in college. We'll leave that alone. Anyway, back to Grandpa Bernie. I adored him. He was a sweet soul. Um, he seemed to genuinely enjoy my company um, in ways that my dad definitely didn't do and my mom only sometimes did. So like he kind of got me. Yeah. So that was important. And um I think I just appreciated his aura. I mean, I was I've been told that I have echoes of Bernie in certain kinds of way, which to me feels like a nice compliment and that he loved to talk to strangers. Um supposedly according to legend, he knew over a thousand families around his route. Um, and people came out of the proverbial woodwork when he died um, with notes and letters and remembrances, kind of like you expect for someone like a mayor or a doctor. Yeah. He was just like the dude who delivered packages, right? Yeah. Um, but the response from these people, 
um, including people we had never heard of or my dad knew as a child and hadn't heard of in, geez, like 40-something years, 50 years. Um, it reflected this kind of warmth and kindness that Bernie had and shared with the world. So for all of those reasons, his death was painful. And then, of course, the last piece I... I was being um, oblique about it. Let me be direct. What I did see in Bernie's decline included the painful reality. And I was 10 or 11, so I was smart enough to like understand this. Robust retired guy, and then after the injury, immediately cut down, and then weight loss, muscle atrophy, eventually cognitive decline with the mini strokes and so forth. Like... It was, you didn't have to be a nurse or a doctor to see the steady decline. And that was really sad. Um, I didn't know the name for it at the time. Later in my chaplaincy training, I would come to learn that's called anticipatory grief. When you know and love someone who's dying and you kind of see it coming. So you start acting like a griever even before the person is going. And so yeah. it's part of the reason why visiting someone in a hospital can be so hard for people. So kudos to all of you listening who visit despite the pain. And I wish bravery for those of you who avoid it. Because um, it's not about you. It's about the person you're visiting. That pep talk notwithstanding, I went through that decline. My dad went through it day by day for 10 months. Sadly, it, it sent him into a pretty serious clinical depression. It lasted a few years, um, watching the the day the the drip by drip death of his own father, um, and I tell that story at some detail because, as an adult, when I came to learn what hospice care was, it felt like a very important positive option that was like an antithesis to what I saw. Uh, with my grandfather's death. Yeah. Um, later on um, in college, one of my favorite, well, I worked with a musician who was rather elderly when I met him. So when he died when I was in college, it wasn't surprising, but it was a death. His name was Lanou Davenport. If you like early music, you can find his recorders, recorder recordings on the internet. I didn't know any dead people at college. One of my college friends would later die, die by suicide um, in his late 20s. That was very sad, but absolutely not surprising. He had mm. battled serious mental illness, had serious hospitalizations, throughout his twenties. Um, but that was shaking and troubling. I'm someone who has occasionally wrestled with depression. So seeing someone, you know, who dies by suicide can be extra upsetting for someone who also struggles with mental health stuff. I know yeah, it was for me. Um, and then one more death I need to mention was the death of my friend, Pete Gimble. Um, the other kid I mentioned, I, I just want to shine a light on him and his memory. His name was Scott Franco. He was joyful when he was shining. He was a singer, dancer. He could tap dance. He was a little bit short, even shorter than me, so kind of had this clowny aspect. 
Um, and uh, he and I met at chorus camp in high school. And then coincidentally, he went to Brown University along with me. So two years younger than me, but ended up pledging my fraternity and partially because we were, I mean, I guess mostly because we were buddies and I kind of invited him along. Yeah. Um, but he was an amazing singer, made it into the best acapella group on campus and um, sadly struggled with some serious demons, but he was an amazing creative kid and a good friend when I knew him, especially in the first years of our friendship. The other friend who died I want to shine a light on was Pete Gimble. Pete and I were friends during college and uh, Pete had muscular dystrophy. So when he and I met, it was because I had been injured and was in a wheelchair temporarily. So I rolled up to him in the cafeteria. I was like, I'm in a wheelchair. So are you. And he was like, I know. And we laughed and um, became buddies. Mm -hmm. I mean, there weren't a lot of, quote, wheelchair people at Brown at the time. I believe he and another uh, young person, a woman, were the first two kids in motorized chairs in Brown history. Okay. Um, he was not the first person to be well qualified, but I I think his last name didn't hurt, um, like his family's heir to the department store fortune. Um, but super brilliant kid. I don't want to imply that it was like all legacy thing, but... Again, yeah. legacy never hurts. So he and I became friends mostly because we were both in wheelchairs, but um, I enjoyed his company. I ended up teaching him voice lessons. We went on some outings. My then girlfriend enjoyed his company. We went together, the three of us, the four of us, to a couple of different places. It was really fun. We stayed connected through our 20s. Um, I was a groomsman at his wedding. He got a girlfriend at college and they ended up getting married. He had a kid and happily he made it. I want to say well into his thirties, which is later than a lot of people live when you have muscular dystrophy. Unfortunately, a lot of people die in their teens and twenties. Yeah. Very sad. Um, but he lived a hell of a life and, um, when I saw him, I had already begun the musical. I did write one moving song loosely inspired by seeing him in the hospital. Um, but like, for me, the, the process of talk of um, <laughs> mapping out those deaths along the timeline as an exercise in chaplaincy and then doing it conversationally here with you, Artie, mm -hmm. it's useful for a few reasons. One, it's a reminder that life and death is cyclical and ongoing in every season. Uh, to quote, to be uh, theological for a second, Ecclesiastes to every season or to every Everything, turn, turn, there's a season, turn, turn. Yeah, I'll stop the quote there before I malign it or mess it up further. But like that's, but you know, as I, I might put it as an elementary school teacher, which is my current job, like life and death is part of life. Or dying is what makes life special. If we live yeah. forever, we would never need to do anything. We would never be motivated to get out of bed. So we could just do it tomorrow. 
the fact that, that life is so short, whether we have 100 years or 80 years or 60 years or 40 or 20 or 10 um, or even one, God forbid, like that makes the time special. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it's before a certain number, the time feels special and a little bit tragic. Oh, one death I skipped over that kind of nudged me towards a future in chaplaincy was a, a young person, the first kid I ministered to. Honestly, if I ever tire of teaching, I've thought about going into chaplaincy in a children's hospital, which takes a certain next level resilience because yeah. you deal with dying children. Definitely. Um, but I was working with a dying kid who was formerly, I won't give his last name to protect because I don't have permission, but he, uh, I'll say his first name, Caleb. He was a, a sweet little boy who I knew who used to come to my Sabbath family service. Uh, at the time I was in Brooklyn. I think I was still, I might have still been, no. I was then a graduate of JTS. So I'd finished my cantor training, but I was living in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's right, because I had Dolly at the time. Right, my, my kid was like a two-year-old at the time. So we used to bike across Brooklyn. She'd be on the back of the bike. It was very bucolic. And... um yeah, I led a, a family service. His families were regulars. And then one one week I got this heartbreaking phone call from the rabbi letting me know that this kid who I loved seeing, sweet singing kid, had been hospitalized. And they discovered that this like nagging cough that he had was a sign, it turned out, of, na- of advanced cancer. Hmm. So I was told this news and invited to take my turn in the visit train. Um, you know, he went from Brooklyn to Sloan Kettering in New York City, famous cancer hospital. And um, I'll never forget this scene, Artie. Um, for one, he was already a rather slight little boy. Needless to say, he lost some weight from his previous skinny self. Yeah. Now that he was dealing with like aggressive leukemia. And uh, the other thing is he had this like, I want to say tragic, this talk about tragic comedy. We had talked about that earlier in our chat. So yeah. here's some tragic comedy. He had a freaking, are you allowed cursing on your, on your podcast? Yeah, that's fine with me. A veritable fucking wall of toys, floor mm. to ceiling wall of toys in the room. Do you know what the, this was about, Artie? No. So think New York City. Think Park Slope. So wealthy kid. Dad was mm. at a big firm. Gotcha. And what do you do when you hear that a kid has been hospitalized for cancer? You send a toy. I am toys. Yeah. And so people sent, and he and I actually had this conversation where we laughed about the absurdity of it because he was, I mean, to put it lightly, he was kind of low energy. He had been hospitalized for an aggressive blood cancer. It turns out he would later be released and die at home a few months later um, from complications of the cancer. Um there was like a little bit of a hopeful feeling before it got worse, but you know, the prognosis is pretty bleak because the cancer travels all through the body and can metastasize any kind of way. 
Um, but I'll tell you that visit, sorry to like, <laughs> I totally spoiler alerted you there, but prior to his death, there were two visits, both of whom, both of which rather were really beautiful. One was at the hospital where we looked at this wall of toys and kind of marveled at it. I felt like he was a little bit of an old soul at that moment. I mean, being super sick has a way of rapidly aging a person. Um, and he and I looked together at the absurdity of this wall of toys. I mean, easily a thousand dollars or more of toys and he didn't have the energy to play with it. And we kind of laughed and I'm sure I said something sardonic, like, well, I'm, I'm sure they meant well. And he was like, yeah, maybe my brother can play with them. Yeah. yeah. And, and, in the, and of course the, the, the sad thing to all that joking was no one was in the mood for playing with toys because this like cloud of death hangs over the room of any kid with a blood cancer, for Christ's sake. So, you know, you want to cheer them up, but you can't. Um, I decided to avoid the elephant in the room. This is a technique I later no noticed, or I would later learn is an actual technique, but I chose just following my instincts not to talk about his cancer. Pro tip, everyone, when you're visiting someone with cancer, don't, li don't lead with how's your cancer. They don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Yeah. Same truth goes for visiting with anyone with any injury or malady. They can tell you if they want to talk about their illness or injury. Most people don't. Um, they want to talk about anything but. So I chose that tack and it was a good instinct. The other thing is like he was a kid and he missed his world of kids. At the time I was working as a kindergarten teacher. I might tear up a little bit telling this story because he was a sweet yeah. boy. Um, so having acknowledged the wall of toys that he wasn't interested in, I got a chair up close next to him and I started showing him pictures on my smartphone of kids from my kindergarten class. Um, kids, Artie, you may know, love other kids. Or a yeah. lot of kids. <laughs> but for young misanthropes, many children enjoy other kids. <laughs> yeah. While they may acknowledge the existence of the adult world, a lot of kids are just totally obsessed with other kids. Um, and so I was able to get him out of his present awful then and there to a world of other children by doing a little slideshow on the phone. And I gave him all kinds of gossip about every kid. Like, here's here's little Frankie. He's the one who's always crawling under the desks. So he gets in trouble, and they take away his playtime at recess. And I think that's a bad idea, because then he's going to crawl more. But the principal says he has to learn not to crawl, and we have to make him squirm a little. But then, you know, so all of this shop talk he found fascinating and, you know, Children don't usually get to hear teachers gossiping about their students, so he found this very funny. Yeah. Kinderner kindergartners are naturally cute. Um, and all of this brought like a sense of liveliness to him and the room that was much needed. The second part of that initial visit involved a couple of brief encounters with the parents. The dad was already in a dark, dark place, and I would come to see him going to a darker place still. He survived, but he lost all faith um, in his 
difficult journey. Not uncommon with the parents of dying or dead children to have a a, a theological crisis. Um, Mom went would later go to a place of activism, raised a shit ton of money in memory of her boy, you know, for cancer research. And I think a lot of cancer charities raise a shit ton of money in memory of dead cancer patients. Not to be crass, but like, there's like this whole ecosystem of people who find community in bereavement hmm. or find community in... Um, this is going to sound funny, Artie, but I'm going to just say it. Disease-specific groups. So, like, we may be aware that because we get emails from our friend who does, like, the mus- – I mentioned muscular dystrophy. So, like, Muscular Dystrophy Association runs a ton of – raises money. All the disease groups, they have groups. So sometimes when people die, their loved ones, they sort of pick up the banner – in memory of the loved one. Um, I've seen that give some people comfort. Um, sometimes people get rather lost. And I noticed that. I mean, I was not yet a a pulpit clergy person, but I, I made note of what happened to the dad because the dad, remember, I knew this family before it was kind of broken up by illness and yeah. death. I knew the family as a cute family of four, kind of like a poster child for Park Slope, cute Jewish families. <laughs> two two brothers. I think they arrived by bike, <laughs> possibly on a long tail cargo bike. Um, and they all arrived together and they loved singing along for this family service designed for families. It was all rather lovely. Um. I couldn't tell you about what their theology looked like prior to the illness and death of their son, but I do want to go into this for a moment because I feel like it's one of the most essential and profound questions that I and so many people have wrestled with. You know, when your loved one goes through terrible suffering. I mean, in the case of this dad, the unusually tragic suffering of an elementary age kid who dies. Um, let's just name it. Many of us go through a theological crisis when the bad thing happens to someone we love or when it happens to us. Um, I've wrestled with this and I'm happy for you to circle back to it in a moment, Artie. Ben, what do you think about suffering and death? I'm happy to weigh weigh in with that. I know we have two hours. Yeah, but yeah. In the case of this young father, um, his answer was, there can't be a God, or I'm I'm paraphrasing on his behalf. Let me let me acknowledge that I I'm not acknowledging the source here. I'm I'm it's an unnamed father with an unnamed child who died from cancer. Um, but that father went to a place that I know many grieving people go to, which is a place of despair and despondence. It's a place of loneliness and anger. Um, 
in theological terms, we often name this the valley, right? In Psalm 23, yeah. the most famous of the Psalms, the one that gets quoted for funerals. By the way, I used it in my musical, in the memorial service. We have a different version of Psalm 23. Right. Let's see, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Correct. Right? Very good. Also in a famous hip hop song. Um, cool, yeah. Gangster's that's, Paradise. That's right. Uh, <laughs> correct. Good job. You get your cool guy creds there, Arnie. Um, but it's a poignant, it's a poignant metaphor because there's a light and death metaphor, right? The shadow of death. Um, usually to catch someone's shadow, um, you need to be close to them, right? So to be in the shadow of death, you're close to them. That's kind of scary. Or even just the shadow of the mountains. That was scary for the biblical people because they didn't understand science. So mm. if you're thinking of like ancient Israelites who didn't have science textbooks, when the sun disappeared at night, and there's this is like a whole... A whole theological thing, but like the, in ancient times, it was believed that when you slept, you it was like a, a semi-death. And when hmm. you woke, it was a, a kind of a mini miracle. So there's a, a subset of prayer in both the Jewish and Christian faith, the waking prayers, actually in Islam as well, the waking prayers. And their historical root comes from a time when human beings did not understand the scientific nature of sleep. And therefore, hmm. they felt the need to thank the Almighty for the miracle that was reawakening from the baby death that was sleep. Follow? Yeah. Um, so we, we in the valley, um, we the ancient people, we might not be able to see the sun or we might not be able to see the next horizon. So... That mountain and valley metaphor, if you think about it way, way, way back, it is a scary metaphor, right? Mountains mountains are not typically friendly in the biblical idiom. Um, sometimes they save us. I guess like Noah in the ark landed on a mountain and he got out. But oftentimes mountains are symbols of scary and the unknown, like forests are in the uh, in the fairy tale tale realm. Anyway, yeah. um, it is it is scary to imagine death and dying, and it is unknown. Um, but I, I think it gets to be manageable when we name it when we sing it, when we pray it, and we accept it as part of the human experience. This is why I also, I mean, I mentioned Psalm 23 as a funeral prayer. Um, funerals, I like to teach, are for the living. And there's a reason why the funeral scene or the memorial service scene ends up being the hopeful scene in my musical. It has an element of looking backwards, right? Like anytime we eulogize someone. But the funerals and even the, the rituals of the burial, they are about those who live, right? Unless you, I'm going to assume, I, I'm speaking as someone who does not believe in the literal um, magic ghost kind of person floating away who can hear the funeral. That's not my conception of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of believe that consciousness, as we conceive of it, ends 
when when life does. Maybe we have an afterlife, maybe we don't. I'm not sure. But I, I do believe that the story of that person here on Earth has ended the minute they stop breathing. And so all of the rituals and the singing and the crying and the remembering, it's about the living people. Mm-hmm. It's about the living people. Maybe that's part of one of one of our implicit messages to Life Review is that as much as losing our loved one is painful, we need to live on. We need to go on living and we can keep their memory alive by sharing their stories, by inviting their stories while they are alive and then repeating them after they go. Um, Maybe that sounds a bit obvious, but that's the power of storytelling. It's the reason why eulogies at funerals are so powerful. Um, And it's also why if you look at songwriting, um, some of the most... I keep admiring that pretty guitar in the background as of yet unnamed guitar already. Um, mine, by the way, is named Josephine in memory Josephine. of a nice real nice. life old lady or Josie for short. Um, one of the oldest form of, of songwritings are the odes, right? Which is like a song that tells the story of someone, AKA in memory of someone. Yeah. Um, you think about the great Irish, folk song tradition um a lot of the ballads were written in memory of someone you know a a song of mary o'grady or that kind of that kind of song um even danny boy which is the most famous irish song of all i love to trot that out and flex my tenor skills every year saint patrick's day for my (laughs) students um but i tell them that it was written in as like uh, an elegy prayer, prayer in memory of dead soldiers, including the son of the poet, an Irish guy whose son Daniel died, I think, at the ripe old age of 16 in World War One. Mm. So there's this amazing, very evocative video online. If you search up on YouTube, um, Irish tenors, Danny boy, there are several versions, of course, but one of them is, you know, has all these beautiful vistas and it includes a little bit of bonus information in the music video, which my students found so, so interesting with like the crazy numbers of how many young men died in Europe, including thousands and thousands of Irishmen who went off and died in the trenchmen, uh, in the trench rather. Um, so anyway, songs about dead people and songs expressing our pain and memory. It's, it's as old as song. Um, and it's certainly a type of song that I leaned into heavily for this life review project. So on that, um, when I was reading the the webpage for the project, um, you, you have a section where you're talking about the first song that you wrote. Yes. And you, you call your wife. Sorry. What was the name of it? Will it still snow? Well, inspired by a poem of the same name by my mother-in-law, Roselle Brown. Hmm. So you call your wife and you, you say, I think they want to be songs, these stories that you've been hearing yes. uh, in hospice. So can you, can you dive into that a little bit? Cause that's very different than saying, I want to make these songs. It, you're, you're kind of giving this, you're giving a, a desire to the, to the actual content rather than you wanting to make it. Um, so that is a, a thoughtful question, Artie. You 
clearly pay close attention to language. Um, and sometimes I speak a little bit like a poet. So when I tell the story, I always say the songs they wanted to be, sorry, the stories they wanted to be songs. Um, and that sounds like the way I probably said it. It is at this point an apocryphal story. I don't have a recording okay. anymore. Um, but here's the thing. There was an artistic desire in me as a songwriter, perhaps budding playwright. You know, initially I didn't know it was a musical, but I quickly decided it was as soon as more than one song was in the can. I mentioned earlier in our chat that part of the magic of the show is that you get to see these private moments on stage in a public way. In my chaplaincy class, I was able to share some of the stories in that verbatim exercise that I told earlier. But there was no dramatic flair. I kept hearing these stories and thinking, like, these stories are so cool. Um, the people were so interesting because, you know, who gets old and dies? Everyone right? Everyone gets old, everyone gets sick, everyone dies. So who do you find in a hospice? Everyone. I had patients who I visited who were white, African-American, Latino, and a mix. Um, handful of Asian people, not too many Native Americans in my part of the country. Um, I had some people who were very verbal. I had some people who were nonverbal. Um, I had some people who were believers. I had some people who were proselytizing atheists and trying to convince me that my God was a hoax and everything in between. Um, wow. You know, fellow Jews who were excited to find a cantor and Christians who wanted to proselytize me. And I was like, no, thanks, guys. Um, and so all kinds of faith moments. Um, I had people who were very lonely. I had people who had a whole group around them. And then in terms of the professions, which became something of a thumbnail for who these people were, you know, as, as potential theater characters, I would meet people who had former jobs that ran the gamut, right? So right off the bat, the most glamorous of all in my mind, I once met a guy who claimed to be former CIA and then later Mossad, as in hmm. Israeli CIA. I yeah. didn't... I wasn't able to verify that because, you know, how do you verify someone's spy service? But that was a very cool story. Another, uh, I met a woman whose husband had been a world touring band leader in a Portuguese dance band and traveled the world as his plus one. Yeah. And told me stories like that. I met a guy later in my hospice training who had been a very famous union person. And if it didn't break confidentiality laws, I would drop his name, but I can't. But I'll tell you that a very famous former union person received hospice care. And mm. then I'm sure eventually died because that was years ago now. But like, there were also a lot of people who were, quote, regular workaday guys. I mean, I remember meeting someone who did aluminum siding and, and kind of laughed about it ruefully and said, you know, I didn't do a whole lot with my life, but I'm proud that I paid my mortgage um, and my kid went to Trenton State. No. And I didn't even graduate high school, so that was pretty freaking good. 
And I was like, yeah, great. And, you know, his, uh, the life of the guy who, quote, simply paid the mortgage or, you know, any other version of, of that uh, kind of humble working man or working woman story is no less valuable, certainly no less sacred than the famous union guy who I can't tell you or the spy or the band person. It's just those first three have a little more razzle-dazzle to them in terms of kind of imagining a story. I ended up selecting, you know, in terms of my archetypes who I put on stage, they all were composites of real-life people. The one who ends up being the most important patient in my story was the one who most closely resembled the patient upon whom he was based. Hmm. So this is the very elderly African-American character. The real life patient when I met him was a hundred and one or a hundred and two. So I slightly changed his name. I changed his name and I changed his age, but his backstory I borrowed, which is that as a young man, he played organ at several of the biggest black churches in Brooklyn in Bedford Stuyvesant. So, you know, gospel organ. And he told, and he and I became friends in real life. And then I kind of borrowed that story as a central narrative thread in the musical that the rabbi befriends this older black church museum, Uh, not museum. (laughs) That's a funny slip musician. And um, the real life guy, he and I used to talk music because he was still very much with it. Despite his impressive, super old age, Um, he was very funny. He used to like kind of tease me about, my guitar chops like i'm a solid <laughs> beginner plus so i use yeah. the capo already you know what a capo is because you have a guitar yeah. there so you know for all of you listeners out there if you're a beginner don't fret and don't be ashamed about using the capo don't anyone <laughs> ever don't let anyone shame you for not having bar chords however this guy of blessed memory totally shamed me he was like where's your bar chords at and i was like <laughs> um i have a capo and he's like get rid of that capo. Learn some damn bar chords. Musician. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me. I was like, I know you're older than me, but I kind of object to you teasing me. <laughs> like, I don't have to play guitar for you. And so what developed was a really lovely and kind of playful back and forth around music as a common language. Um, That's... It it was unusual enough that I think it caught my memory and then guided me towards fictionalizing that relationship on the stage. I had many more relationships that were kind of long-term like that. People are surprised. This is like a fun fact about hospice. While some people are in hospice for one day or one week or one month, some make it to three months or four months or six months. At six months, you are reevaluated. Sometimes you graduate out, as in your hmm. health improves and you leave hospice care. That happens a lot with someone like the fictional Leroy, um, who the real life character was based on. He was in and out of hospice care for at least two years. Yeah. Um, 
sometimes the lack of dramatic interventions and a whole lot of TLC is very healthy for people. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, did I answer your question this time, Marty? Yeah, definitely. Okay, One of the things I liked, you kind of touched on this, um, and it's something I've noticed. You, you mentioned, you know, you had somebody that was potentially former CIA, Mossad, and uh, somebody who is a union leader and and then somebody who is, you know, regular, some, somebody that most people would perceive as more unassuming, just common. And that person still great, gave very interesting insights and, and stories. And mm-hmm. I think that's something uh, I've learned throughout my life is people that you wouldn't expect to have interesting stories or, or you know, brilliant insights. Brilliant insights can come from the most unassuming people and the people that are just, you know, there's nothing particularly ravishing about them from the outside. But then when you get to know them, they can give very interesting insights. Like you can talk to a factory worker who's been just doing the same job. Most people would consider a boring job for 30 years and they might have something extremely insightful to say about life and and work and and things like that so i like that you touched on that i i think you are 100 percent correct Artie. um you know there is okay i'm i'm aware that i'm trying not to be preachy but maybe this is something else uh a message that is implicit in the musical that all of us, uh, whether we are actively dying or supporting those who are dying or we are just living, but parentheses, we are all actively dying, just different rates. Um, Sorry to be dark, but seriously, (laughs) folks, um, wherever we are, the commonality of the mortality that 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 is a common thread in our experience and um in a way i think old age and mortality might be more painful for the high and mighty because it is humbling for all of us um fancy rich Famous people may have eaten less humble pie in their life since becoming fancy and rich. This is just a theory. I can't prove it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it is safe to say that if you're in one of the industries where you need to stay young and beautiful forever, you spend a lot of time and money um, trying to stay young and beautiful, right? We all know that Hollywood and plastic surgery and all of that. Yeah, right? very much. Um, and... on the so-called surface level, that's all about vanity and staying bankable as a star and, you know, wanting to be on screen. Um, but if you want to like pull back to like, what is the big picture there? It's trying to outrun death. Mm -hmm. Um, because no matter, I mean, in a certain sense, a TV or Hollywood actor gets to be immortal by virtue of being in a TV show or movie that lives forever. Um, and like creative people, they put out their stuff and you know, dead Michael Jackson lives on forever because he's yeah. awesome music and so forth. Um, 
No, but other than that, we still all get to die. So, you know, it's sort of a magical thing about celebrities in that, you know, I... I don't know about you, Artie, but I'm a, a sucker for um, Hollywood movies about musicians. I don't know. Do yeah. you like? Do you also like movies about musicians? I do. Yeah. You do. Have you seen the new Elvis movie? I have. Netflix? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I saw. It was very insightful, movie. actually. I what? I didn't know much about his relationship with his manager and how. Oh, that's dark. It was a very interesting perspective. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So. If you're listening, if you haven't seen the new Elvis movie, check it out. There is a lot of dark stuff with with Elvis's management, played by a super creepy Tom Hanks with crazy prosthetic. Um, the guy who played Elvis, whose name escaped me, was just luminescent, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, really got that star it thing that Elvis had. Um, where was I going with it? Oh, so I loved how much time it lingered on the early Elvis because I think when he caught fire that I, I guess I'm, I'm coming out publicly as voting for young Elvis <laughs> while I, while I acknowledge the existence of old Elvis slash fat Elvis um, or maybe big Elvis is nicer. I'm going to vote for the young Elvis postage stamp. By the way, if, if listeners don't know about the young versus old Elvis postage stamp controversy, you should look it up on the internet. I believe they both existed. Um, or did they only make the younger one? I don't remember. But anyway, it was a controversy for a while. But I think it was Hang on. Can you, can you explain can this explain controversy? That? Okay. That, that some people think there were two different people? No, no. It's that postal. Okay, so we all know that Elvis was huge. Mm-hmm, yeah. After his death, um, and yes, he did die. Um, after his death, sometime later, the Postal Service announced they would make a commemorative stamp. And then okay. they announced they weren't sure if they were going to go with a portrait of a young Elvis or a, quote, classic Elvis, as in Vegas Elvis. Gotcha. Vegas gotcha. was where he landed for his long-term residencies later in his career when he became famously older and fatter, um, pretty hopped up on drugs and eventually died, sadly, way too young. Yeah. Um, but it became a little bit of a meme, like, which Elvis do you like? Do you like young Elvis, as in the heartthrob, or old Elvis, as in, like, I don't know, sort of nostalgia, retro Elvis, it's, it's kitschy Elvis, it's 70s Elvis, but it's also kind of acknowledging that, like, pop and rock stars have this um this second life right yeah. now i mean elvis kind of created it with his manager this sort of perpetual vegas residency and printing money with the aging fans who you can charge an arm and a leg for in this day and age it is huge 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 part of the concert business the so-called legacy acts in a bygone era they would have retired when they hit 50 but now you've got bands like the Stones and Elton John yeah. and Billy Joel. And I mean, I saw Paul Simon on his farewell tour and I think it was, it had to be a many hundred million dollar tour. Yeah. I mean, just spectacular. And he's my favorite of all time. And they were like nosebleed partial view obstruction, which is the best yeah. ticket my wife could get. We had to go to a different city, that kind of tour. 
But oh my God, I understand why people pay spectacular sums of money because I'm going to talk about seeing Paul Simon live until the day I die. Because he's <laughs> going to die soon. I mean, God willing, no. not for a while, but he's old. Um, he's not going to last for another 20 years. I mean, maybe he could. But like, I get why people want to see their touring artists forever. It's sort of because if you can still see them live, it brings you back to when you first saw them when you were both younger. Yeah. Um, and that was the magic captured in the movie about Elvis in those Vegas shows before it got dark and druggy and all that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think we, I, I know I went a little bit down the, the celebrity loophole, but, but it all began with which version of the person do you like to remember? So there's a non-celebrity version of this Artie. Um, yeah. And I play with this a little bit in my musical, right? It's, it's the nature of memory. Um, we do this with our loved ones, right? Where we see yeah. them in our present tense and we think about them in the version when we first met them uh, with our younger, sexier selves. Um, like I said, with celebrities, certainly some of us, especially with dead ones, we can remember which version, which era um, sometimes people ask about it, like in terms of their haircuts, like, did you like the Beatles with the short hair or the long hair? Yeah. Um, and then you kind of lock in on that memory. Um, you see that a lot in hospice care and in the, in the memories that go with it. Um, kind of what do people seize upon, um, I mentioned earlier that life review conversation and the interview. Um, so when those life review conversations happen, um, people, people bring up the things that really matter and shine bright in the constellation of their memories. And um, the things that are shameful or dark probably not shine a light on that unless they decide it's important to. Um, yeah. Maybe if you have a deep clinical relationship, that might happen. If you have several visits and they feel the need to unburden themselves, that sometimes happens. Not as frequently as Hollywood might suggest. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is a fun fact. Uh, it's not as many deathbed confessions as uh, Hollywood writers um, might suggest. By the way, up with Union. Yay, Strikers. Okay. But I, I hope we're not sag after here, Artie. Yeah. No? No, we're Even good. There. Okay. Yay. Um, there you go. Did I answer your question? And then four others you that you didn't ask? Okay. <laughs> so how often do you think about death? I mean, do you think about it more than most people you know because of being around it so much or... Hmm. Well, I'm not current. I'm no longer currently working as a chaplain in hospice care. My current full-time job is elementary school music teacher. Mm -hmm. So those kids are pretty lively and God willing a long way from, uh, from serious illness and death. Um, in my previous professional lives, when I was working part-time as a chaplain or training as a chaplain, Certainly the the two years out of four when I was a hospice intern, I was encountering death and dying more regularly and therefore thinking about it more. Um, now, as the purveyor of a musical comedy where death and dying is kind of one of the big topics, 
I guess I talk about it more than most, certainly while I'm going on a spate of podcast appearances. Um, I'm guessing I think about death more than run-of-the-mill Joe Schmo because of all those reasons. Um, I should also mention, um, separate from my creative interest, um, you know, I am, I, I mentioned earlier in our chat, Artie, I'm 43, so I'm definitely a proud member of the sandwich generation. Where The sandwich a, generation? Uh, yeah. Oh, you don't know that term? You're learning no. so much today. I love it. Sandwich generation, the meat are the 30 to 50-year-olds where they have at once living and aging parents, or parents, but usually parents, and then living and needy school-age children. Mm, so So I think the technical definition is your child is 18 or younger, and your parents are still alive and presumably getting older by the day. Okay. So um, a lot of people between the age of 30 and 50 fall into that category. Um, So, and the reason why I bring it up, um, my wife happens to be older than me and her parents are also older than my parents. Uh, So thank God they're all healthy and um, God willing, stay stay healthy for a long time. Um, But they read more as old people than my parents. But my parents are catching up. Um, and, uh, so part of having aging grandparents for my daughter or aging in-laws, aging parents is when we have the family vacations, I kind of look at situations and I think about it, let's say maybe informed by my clinical training, working in elder care and hospice care, for instance, um, if you're listening to this and you don't have old people in your life, you might know you might not know about things like grab bars in showers or the different gradations of canes, like a regular cane and then a multi-prong cane and then switching to a walker. These yeah. are all like words that don't mean anything to you. However, if you have a loved one in your life, who has dealt with a temporary or permanent disability or a degenerative disease, whether degenerative disease or just advanced aging, you've seen at a certain point they add a cane and then they might switch to a multi-pronged cane and then they might switch to a walker. And then when they can't do a walker anymore, they do a wheelchair. It's like this natural progression of advancing what we call decreasing mobility or advancing infirmity. Those are your jargony terms. Now I'm explaining a lot here. I see it up close with my own mother-in-law right now. She knows it. So if she hears this interview, I'm not disclosing. I I won't. I mentioned to her earlier as a wonderful poet. She also happens to be a person who's older than she used to be and she knows it. And so does everyone she knows. I'm not giving away a secret. Um, a couple years ago, for various reasons, her gait had become irregular and she needed to start using a cane. And there was a little bit of tension in some of the initial visits where I was sort of, let's say, I might have been a little bit pushy, what my wife calls aggressively helpful, trying to mm-hmm. get her to use the cane because I, 
I was wearing my clinical hat saying she's going to fall and then break her hip and then she's really fucked. And then we're not dealing with just a cane. We're dealing with a surgery, a wheelchair for a while. Um, now, why does my head go there? Because I spent a year where part of my work was visiting people in a rehab center where I met people the age of my mom or my mother-in-law who say, I used to be healthy until I fell and then I broke my hip and then I was in a wheelchair. So like that story is available not too far from the surface when I see my own family members moving in a way that suggests they might take a tumble. Um, yeah. So that's not to be like extra dark about it, but I think in the same way that like my fellow school teachers think about children that they encounter in and out of the classroom in a different way that non-educators do, I think anyone who works in elder care for more than a year is going to be informed by that clinical experience in all of their subsequent elder encounters, right? Yeah. One of the things we, we talked about a lot in chaplaincy training, Artie, is you are not chaplain for your parents. Or if you're older, you are not chaplain for your siblings. You are not chaplain for your spouse. Um, there's a reason why in most schools you're not permitted to be teacher to your own child because you don't want to like blur those roles and those power dynamics. Um, yeah. Well, and we have more, uh, I think we tend to have more ego associated with our close relationships, family relationships than we do with, uh, with people we don't know. So when you're, when you're approaching a family member about kind of giving up a freedom in a sense, because like being able to walk freely is a freedom. So when you're asking somebody to use a cane or something, you're kind of, you're asking them to kind of admit that they can't do something on their own, or at least not as well. And that's, it's a very, I can imagine there's a lot of contention in those conversations with a family member. So I'd imagine maybe you had a lot, a little bit of that contention if you were being a little bit pushy, you know, or clinical in, in your way of viewing things. Yeah. Maybe a little less sensitive to what she was feeling at that moment, I'd imagine. Yeah. And I got some gentle reminders from my wife, as in my mother-in-law's daughter, who said she's going to figure out how and when she needs to use her cane. Yeah. Um, and that's a good lesson for all of us with aging parents that we can lovingly notice things. We can express concern. Uh, we can suggest aforementioned grab bars in the shower, or even if we're handy, install it for them if we must. Um, but also be aware, folks, that like a lot of times these conversations are, as you said, contentious, as I would say, fraught. Um, sometimes it's it's helpful. This is a technique I, I often use when having a fraught conversation. I like to announce the fraughtness <laughs> and I'll say, I just want to name this. This is going to be a little bit fraught. And then I proceed to have the fraught conversation. Um, it's a... It's a disarming technique. Um, but like the truth is the, the difficult conversations, whether they are about safety concerns for aging relatives or 
to come back to the musical for a second, the conversations about our own mortality or how much we love the person in the bed and the person in the bed is dying. And can we talk about that in full sincerity and, and be here in this moment despite our pain? That's that's kind of the, the challenge that the musical brings up again and again. Um, and, and through the exchange of stories, through the power of music, we can try to get back to that moment. Because the impulse, both on stage as a playwright and certainly as a real-life person, is to be anywhere but that moment of discomfort. I mean, in a, in a certain way, we are taught from a very young age the technique of... I forget the term, but it's like when you're somewhere scary, imagine you're on a beach. Mm. And do you remember learning that as a child? Like if you're about to get a shot, imagine yeah. somewhere relaxing, right? Like yeah, we put are, your mind we somewhere are, else away from yeah, what you're yeah. actually dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. But how often do we teach our children? We are in a difficult, painful moment. Let's breathe deep. Think about what a different experience that is for a child or anyone of any age to acknowledge pain and then sit in it. Yeah. This this might be like the superpower of the chaplain. It's not just listening. Um, I had one teacher describe it as going into the basement. Again, metaphor. Or, you know, the biblical person is pre-basement, so that's why it's mountain and valley. The modern mm -hmm. person, it's house and basement. So think dark basement, think sad basement, possibly creepy basement if, if death and dying creeps you out. But the person who's suffering in their moment of sadness is sitting in the basement. Can you picture it, Artie? Yeah. Yeah. So the chaplain knocks on the door and in in literal non-metaphoric non -metaphoric terms, we do often knock on doors and ask for permission to enter. But returning to the metaphor, we knock on the door and gain permission to walk down into the basement with the patient. And then yeah. we sit down next to them and we say, I see you're in the basement. Tell me what's going on. Or what's going on today? Or how'd you get here? I mean, there's different approaches, but it begins with an acknowledgement that you are in this place of great pain. Notice how different that is from, hello, can I help bring you to the beach? <laughs> or let me, let me drag you upstairs. Um, it is, by the way, I want to acknowledge, I've been laughing a lot about aggressive helpfulness. So many of us um, attempt to bring cheer and relief to our loved ones, and I want to acknowledge it is a positive and helpful, no, it is a positive helping impulse. It is sometimes, but not always helpful. Mm. And I think what's so tricky for those of us who want to visit our loved ones is that the impulse to cheer someone up is the easiest or distract is the easiest of all the impulses. You and I both have guitars. So we might be the kind of friend who brings their guitar to the old age home or to the house of someone who's sick. And if you've ever done that, Artie, then you've experienced how joyful that can be. I once had a chaplaincy teacher critique that in front of my peers. And he was like, kind of challenged me and said, Ben, I think when you bring the guitar into the room, you make it about you. And hmm. I was like, huh. And I did not like that. But, you know, this was a, 
we had enough hours to really dive into it. And um, clearly I'm remembering it a few years later. So if nothing else, it made an impression. Um, I disagreed with his general point, but here's where he was going. Basically, he was saying that if you show up with a visible reminder that you are a troubadour, a musician on the road, they're going to think, oh, here comes the show. Whereas a chaplain is, in essence, showing up to make space for a conversation. Um, I didn't like that. <laughs> yeah. Both because I enjoyed the guitar and I'm going to admit with distance, I sometimes used it as a crutch. The thing is, playing guitar quietly, including favorite folk songs from my like pocket size songbook in the gig bag, was an easier way to earn my time than sitting silently in a room with a dying person. So I would choose guitar playing. Um, there are some people who would always choose sitting quietly and praying in a room with a dying person. Not my style. For me, I can more easily access a meditative and contemplative place while strumming the guitar or even singing a prayerful song. Because sometimes in those moments of sadness or let's just name it discomfort, finding the words are really difficult. Finding yeah. the words can be really difficult in those moments of despair. Um, I'm wondering if, Artie, I could use that thought as an invitation to sing one of the songs from my show. What do Absolutely, you think? yeah. All right, cool. I will introduce it, and then I will tune, because why do we tune? Because we care. Um, let's see. Can I be coherent and grab the guitar and the music? Ah. This is tricky, but we can do it. Shout out to my friend Sue Horowitz, who teaches, Why do we tune? Because we care. Artie, how many times in the history of your podcast have you had someone do live music? None. This is the first. This is the first? It is. Oh, in which case, I don't know if I have to tune because... Who are you comparing me to? Just kidding. I care about the ears of your listeners. It's so funny. She says this, and then she says it again and again. Sue happens to run a songwriting retreat that I've been to for several years. And um, so anytime someone stops and tunes, everyone yells out, Why do we tune? Because we care. It's like a, like a chant. <laughs> so the name of the song is Send Me a Sign. It's the I Wish song for you musical theater fans, you know, an I Wish song is the big moment where the main character declares his or her hidden or not secret wish or dream for the world, their big purpose for being. So because our main character is a rabbi, his I Wish song is a theological one. 
and listen how he's wrestling with some difficult stuff, um, including why is uh, why has stuff gone so badly for him, even though he's a, a man of faith. The chaplain, our hero, Rabbi David, has just fallen on his face, so to speak. He was attempting to help a family with a young son dying of cancer, the mother in despair, and he offered up uh, the helpful advice that in the book of Job, the man was a faithful man and his son died too. The mother was horrified and he just walked away embarrassed at having made such a terrible gaffe. And uh, he walks away and doesn't know if he's ever going to find his way doing this thing right. So he sings this song. God, can you hear me? Even when I've nothing to say, when nothing is going my way, God, are you near me? Will you be with me? Whenever I am stuck in despair, all of the world is unfair. Please, God, see me. God, what if I can't say a word or it comes out wrong? God, tell me if asking's absurd. Do you like my song? Send me a sign from where you are. Are you near or far or in between? I have seen so many seekers. I am one too. It's time for you to send me a sign. Oh, I'm wondering about some big things could you tell me why you made both my parents die left me in pieces i want to find out tell me how not to feel so alone whenever rain soaks me to the bone answer with rainbows is there an answer to learn from the pain all around from the sound of tears in the dark send me a sign from where you are far far in between so many seekers, I am one I turn my heart to you. So please, God, send me a sign. Oh, 
send me a sign. Send me a sign. Thank you so much for sharing that. Hey, you're welcome, Artie, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And if you, you should have- send a thank you email to Artie later for editing out what was at least was it about forty five minutes of me tuning the guitar? It felt like that. <laughs> no, not even close. It was thirty nine, yeah. forty maybe. Um, okay. No, but again, it wasn't. because your ears matter to me, good listener. I took the time to tune. If I hated you and I hated your ears, I would have just played straight ahead and you would have been like beautiful song but why does he hate me (laughs) well if you have a a few more minutes i'd like to ask you just a couple more questions Um, i have a few more minutes for you Artie. i'd be happy to answer more questions please bring it awesome and again thank you for sharing the song i I think the listeners will really appreciate it so yeah do you have any advice for people who are you know, going to experience death because of age or they, you know, have diagnosis or something or anything like that. What would your general advice potentially be mm. for that? Oh, wow. Oh. The short answer is you're not the first one and you won't be the last. That's not to minimize your experience, but to begin by regularizing it. You know, I alluded to the funny number, everybody dies in the end. And I'm sure when you get a terminal diagnosis or whatever your age, dealing with death is not immediately a funny thing. But, you know, the the truth within that punchline, the fact of our mortality is part of the most important I'd say acceptance is one of the foundations for a healthy death and dying process. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the famous uh, psychologist and researcher who named the stages of grief, um, her initial study was actually naming stages of anticipatory grief for the patient. And then eventually those stages got transferred to the living griever after the death of the patient. Fun fact. If you read her writings, this is the truth, believe me. Um, But she taught us that both for that ill person and that grieving person, acceptance is the most important goal. So I lead with the fact of your death because to have a healthy death and dying process, you have to accept the fact that it's happening. Um, So much of the dysfunction that I've seen in my role as chaplain or even congregational cantor when dealing with families around this very issue, Artie, is when one or more members of the family ecosystem is not accepting, you know, known as denial. Mm -hmm. Oh, mom's going to be okay, right? She'll make it. She has before. Like, no, actually, this time it's late stage cancer and she's in hospice care. But there must be something we can do and we should move her to the hospital to save her. Like, no, she had her advanced directive and so forth. But, oh, yeah. Parentheses, everyone who's listening, if you don't have an advanced directive, get one. If you're not sure what it is, look it up on Wikipedia. 
Um, very important for everyone to give their medical wishes. Um, put it in writing, share it with your loved ones, in writing, verbally, next of kin, and on and on. Very important, because if you don't want to be in a hospital filled with tubes and machines and so forth, you got to put it in writing, or they will probably put you there if, God forbid, you get hurt real bad. Um, but separate from that very specific advice, the more general advice is to make all kinds of preparations while you can um, and help your loved ones um, to make the plans while you're alive. Um, that may sound a tiny bit crass because it, it feels like logistics and it feels yucky, but I think most next of kin actually prefer to know with some certainty, like this is what mom would want. By the way, yeah. if you've never thought of doing it, it might be an interesting exercise to sit with your loved one and talk about what you want at your funeral and then put it in writing. Even if it's something like yeah. a poem that you want read or a favorite song. I know in my brain, but if God forbid I get killed tomorrow, I've never put it down. So I should. Um, a lot of older people have done that thinking, but it's worth reminding our listeners that none of us know the day and time of our death, just that it's happening. Yeah. So it's worth putting it down in the same file where you put your medical directive, your plans for your funeral. Um, now, of course, if you're someone who's dealing with say a terminal diagnosis or a degenerative disease, and you know that that's coming, you may have already had a conversation with a social worker about making plans for your end of life care, making plans for a funeral. I mean, that's sort of a typical conversation that a chaplain might have on an intake, especially with a hospice patient. Um, I should say parenthetically that some of these conversations, and this applies for all of the big picture talk about hospice, some of the conversations cannot occur if a person is no longer communicative, in which case the conversations happen with the next of kin. Um, through the magic of theater, every one of my hospice patients is able to sing and dance and make jokes. Um, that's not how real life hospice works. Some hospice patients are communicative. Some people who are dying are very lively and surprisingly so. Um, it depends on the person and the condition, the age and the stage. But returning to the general advice, um, I think working on acceptance is important. I'd say connect with people who you love and try not to be afraid of their reaction or their fear. I have been, I have worked funerals where some people didn't know so-and-so was dying, and I think that's a sin. Um, or to use a non-judgy theological word, a shame. <laughs> that's just judgy. Um, but uh, Interestingly, comedians are kind of known to do that. Or I, I can think of a few comedians, uh, most recently Norm MacDonald. Um, oh, Norm Macdonald didn't tell died anybody. of cancer without telling anyone or something. Yeah, no one, no one really knew he had cancer, and well, I've heard a few other stories like that. It's, it is. So I understand why there's a behavior, and I will also try to disavow people of that impulse. I think the reason why a lot of people, especially a celebrity like Norm Macdonald of blessed memory 
a lot of people are embarrassed about the fact of their disease and their mortality. Because let's name it. No one looks good when they die. I mean, reference the story of the beautiful little sister in the <laughs> an hour and a half ago. You know, death and dying is a little scary. When we get older and diminished, we don't look as nice as we did when we were younger and fully ripe and full of life and ready to meet and mate and on and on, right? Like that's just part of the design of the human condition. And to use the ugly, pretty words again, that's that ain't pretty. And um, that's one of the things that we wrestle with in the play when we're we have all this funny dialogue. It's like kind of acknowledging that even though this this thing isn't nice to look at, we need to be close to it. We need to be safe. We need to feel safe with it despite feeling a little bit a little bit scared of it. So, you were asking about the person who's dying. I was talking about the feeling of the dying person. I guess I'm saying if you are feeling embarrassed about being sick and not wanting your loved ones to see yourself like that, you're not the first, but I would, I would tell you on behalf of your loved ones, they want to know and they want to connect with you before you die. Um, on the flip side of that equation, if you are the plus one, the friend, loved one, family member of someone who's seriously ill or dying, I always like to, remind people this during my appearances, Artie, um, please take the time to connect in this day and age through computers and smartphones and old fashioned landlines. And, you know, you, you can avoid the smells of the place. If that's your worry, mm -hmm. you can avoid the germs through all those tech things. In person is still best. If you're in the same zip code or able to get there, I encourage you to visit. But whether it's mediated through a screen or in person, visit, visit, visit. It's so important for the person you're visiting to feel loved and not forgotten. And it's important for you. Um, you who are listening to this right now, think about that loved one who's a little bit older or a little bit less healthy than they used to be. And I encourage you with love and respect to give them a call or a text after this pod is done um they're going to be so appreciative and they're going to be so happy to hear from you yeah uh, thank you thank you for that the last uh question i had if you have an answer is uh what do you feel like the meaning of life is and has your experience facing death shaped that view at all uh, for those of you just listening i just made a wow face with very big <laughs> eyebrows because I was expecting, where can the people get in touch with you? On, uh, but we'll 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 do the plug stuff later. Um, you asked, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, was it, I'm just curious. Is that your closing question for everyone, or is that special for me? No, it's not a closing question for everyone. I actually kind of feel like you would have a valuable insight, being you know so involved in the death process for years um all right i i just feel like you might have a good insight on that i, or, I accept or, it with the love yeah. with which it was offered um so i will start by owning my humility i have no exceptionally deep insights into the biggest deepest question of all and yet i will humbly attempt 
to answer because I was invited to do so. To me, I think I mentioned this in passing earlier in our beautiful chat today, Artie, that the brevity of life or just the fact of its beginning, middle, end is what gives its meaning or, or is, is what makes the time meaningful, the fact that it's finite. And I, I actually explain this to the children I teach a lot. I, I, uh, I'm a general music teacher, K to four, but I, I teach to middle school. I've certainly taught people of all ages, including adults and seniors. But whenever people ask me about life and death stuff, I always start with that lesson. Like the fact of death is what gives life holiness and was is and was is what what makes it precious, right? The things that feel like limitless are the things that we tend to take for granted. And unfortunately, they're the things that we tend to waste. Think about mm -hmm. how most of us think about water. That might be changing now in the age of climate change and climate disaster. More of us are dealing with drought conditions, but I don't know. If you are not currently under a drought warning, you take a shower as if the water is free. I mean, most of us, yeah. if you're in no hurry. And if you have a garden and you're enjoying yourself and you're in no hurry, you water your garden as if the water is free. God, I mean, I certainly do. Note to self, water my garden. Um, but then when you're told we're on a city drought warning and you can only water between this and this time, or we're going to jack up your rates to reflect how expensive the water really is, no subsidies, da da da, you're going to have a different approach to how you use the water. Yeah. Suffice to say that the trope of the wise old man and wise old woman in fiction, in TV, in movies, even on Broadway stages, that's a trope for a reason. Because in the popular imagination, the old person must have figured out something important to share by the end of their life. And by virtue of their life being nearly over, they're probably going to want to tell someone about it. It all kind of makes sense. Now, I think in real life, not all of us have a pile of wisdom accrued. Usually we have something to offer to share, but not all of us are that, that teacher who wants to be the wise old man or wise old woman, wise old person. Yeah. Um, but I do think that the exper the unique experience of every person, regardless of perceived wisdom, is, is the unique gift of their life, right? In, again, speaking in the parlance of life review, um, tell me your story, give a glimmer of your glory. So that little lyric, that little couplet sums it up. You tell me your story, give me a glimmer of your glory. Every one of us has a story to tell. Every one of us has experiences that are special to us, that matter to us at some point along the way. I think in sharing those stories with other people, we, we build connection, we get closer, um, we shine a light on, on those stories and acknowledge their uniqueness and their holiness. Um, I think for me, a lot of my life has been about um, using music 
to bring joy and beauty to other people's lives, to entertain and to soothe. Um, in my current role as music teacher, music is used in all kinds of ways to teach, to entertain, to be expressive, to create, to dance, you know. So all those different ways that we can interact in music, those give my life great meaning. And then separate from my trade, um, I think it comes down to um, those moments that we share with people. Again, yeah. like that that's part of the message of life review. While we acknowledge the 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 bittersweet aspect of having to say goodbye to anyone we love, you know, any any pair, someone's gonna go first, and that's painful, right? But we wouldn't ever forego love because someone's going to die first. God knows for millennia, we keep falling in love despite our mortality um, because it's a powerful thing. And loving another person romantically and platonically um, is what gives life meaning. And it's one of life's great joys. Lastly, I would say sharing adventures with those people who you find along the way. You're, your your biological family, your chosen family, your chosen and adopted tribe, and then enjoying the pleasures of life. Um, I wasn't necessarily raised to really um, embrace all of the uh, so-called hedonistic pleasures. I've certainly grown into a man who enjoys them uh, a good amount, perhaps excessively so on occasion. Um, but I think that's what life is all about. Those things that are, that give us pleasure, um, all five right. senses, the beautiful things that we can look at and hear and smell and taste and touch, um, those joys that I rattled off related to music and the ancillary pleasures that come with them. So dancing and singing and making music and creating music and creating art to me, those are the essential meanings of life. For me, as I walk through this world, and I hope I'm blessed to continue um, doing those things to give my life meaning and to share it with others for uh, many moons to come. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that answer. All right. So I think that's all the questions I have. So uh, before we wrap up the recording, why don't you give the listeners insight on where to find your musical and, and reach you and just absolutely anything Thanks you want to for share. the opportunity already. Uh, yeah. So the, the web, the name of the musical again is life review, the hospice musical. The website is lifereviewmusical.com. That's all one word. L I F E R E V I E W musical.com. Instagram where I'm pretty active. It's at life review musical. Uh, when you go to that website I mentioned a moment ago, uh, right away there's a great trailer video that anyone listening can check out, and you'll get a chance to hear some excerpts of some music, as well as some video clips of our last live performance that occurred right before the pandemic. Um, and I'm happy to share with everyone listening that now that we're on the tail end of the worst of the pandemic, to um we are doing both live and virtual performances. During the pandemic, Artie, I was actually like doing a compressed version of the show through the laptop 
with narration, kind of cabaret style. And it was well-received, but uh, certainly missed live theater. So it's great that we're performing now live and looking for partners and places to appear, um, both for the one-man show and the full show. So one-man show is a lot easier to put on, and I'm able to travel as well as to do it on the computer. And you can inquire about that through the website. that's simpler to arrange and more affordable to stage that can be done virtually. And I can travel and do that performing live with the guitar and the iPad uh, or a live pianist. That's a one hour show soup to nuts, eight songs with narration. And that's really engaging with the general audience as well as with the clinical audience. It's been well received in church and synagogue settings, professional conferences. So I'm excited to engage with some really challenging material in a fun and thought-provoking, emotional, um, and engaging way. Then for the full-length show, I am looking for theater partners. So if you're out there and you're a theater person, if you're involved with a local or regional theater that does new works and you're intrigued, please get in touch and let me know. We are looking for partners to help us produce and stage our next iteration of the show. And then, of course, on Instagram, you know, you can DM me if you want to talk. And, uh, yeah, looking to to appear with the show and talk about it on more podcasts. So, yes, keep the opportunities coming. Be in touch. And uh, I guess the... Yeah, so so glad to to hear from people. If you heard me today and you found this impactful, if you have questions, um, whether through Instagram or the website, I'd just be happy to hear from you. Love to connect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Thoughtfully Mindless. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the podcast and share it with somebody that you think would enjoy it. It really helps out a lot. I will have the full audio podcast released every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. And I will have various video clips released on different social medias like YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.